The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. There is a there is a challenge in telling a story that covers 66 books, thousands of years, and packing it into six hours, right? And um, <clears throat> I've been told that I can also often feel like um, he didn't give us a drink. He just kind of turned on the fire hydrant. And, uh, but, but part of the goal is, I mean, you don't have to go back and reproduce all this right now, but that you can step back, get a big picture, just take it in and glory in the purposes of God. That the failures of Adam and Eve to image God get fixed in the last Adam. And he's the one who's come to redeem us. He is the perfect imager of our God who fulfills everything that Adam didn't fulfill. Just, just be able to pause and celebrate that. Just be able to rest in all that God is for us in Jesus. And just take it in. Just let the story fall on you. And all of this material is going to be available. The recordings will be available. And you can go back and take more in. Um, Waters of judgment. When God says in Genesis 3.15, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, that doesn't set us up for a generations and generations of little snakes. What it sets us up for is the genealogies that dominate the book of Genesis, the line of promise of those hoping in the offspring, and the line of rebel. So that the climax of the rebel line happens in Jesus' own ministry when the Pharisees are claiming, we're offspring of Abraham. And he says, no, you're not. You're offspring of your father, the devil. That's what we're talking about here in Genesis 3.15. Two different family trees. One that is very small. Few are there are those that walk in it. And one that is massive, and many are they that go in the path of destruction. Two different family trees, and you see it played out in the distinction of genealogies in the book of Genesis. Lots of genealogies in Genesis, but there's two different kinds. Genesis 5 and 11 are linear genealogies. What does linear sound like? What do you think we've got going on in Genesis 5 and 11? What? She doesn't want to get it out, but it is in our lips. It's What is it? A straight line. Okay, so we have in, um, a linear genealogy is A gave birth to B and other kids. B gave birth to C and other kids. C gave birth to D and other kids, and, it, and it's a straight line, because, and, it, and it's not designed to let us know any of the other offspring. It's designed to get us from Adam to Noah, 
who gives birth to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's it. That's the goal. And then in chapter 11, you have Shem, who gives birth to D, C, E, F, G, all the way down to Nahor, and sorry, Terah, who gives birth to Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. So it's a linear genealogy. It's focused. In contrast to that, we also have segmented genealogies, where A gave birth to B, C, and D. These are all of B's kids. These are all C's kids. These are all D's kids. And we see those genealogies specifically in chapter 10 that sets forth all of the 70 families that filled the earth in the Tower of Babel. I say 70 because you just go through and count them, and there's 70 of them. And that's given to us through a segmented genealogy. We see it in the line of Esau. Sorry, even before Esau, the line of Ishmael. Ishmael gets a genealogy. Esau gets a genealogy. Why are they included in the book? But they're given to us in segmented form. Linear genealogy moves us along. It's part of the story. All the narratives in Genesis are focused on the remnant. The the linear genealogies are focused on the remnant. The story is moving. The history of salvation is progressing. But then the segmented genealogies slow us down. They lack structure. I mean, there's good structure, but it's this broken structure. A gave birth to B, C, D. Here's all B's kids. Here's all C's kids. Here's all D's kids. It slows us down. One question we have to ask when reading Genesis is, why are they drawing attention and slowing down the reader to focus on the rebels rather than on the remnant. We'll see why in just a minute. But here we come, the climax, the remnant line that moves from Adam all the way to Noah in chapter 5. By the time we get to Noah, in the year of the flood, he's all that's left of the remnant. He's surrounded by a world of rebels against God, all of them offspring of the serpent. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found, ESV says, favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word is grace. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, that's how this word is translated. He found grace. The very next verse says, these are, the genealogy, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in all of his ways. Noah walked with God. That's the very next verse. And I think this verse explains how. How is it that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in all his ways? How is it that Noah walked with God? This verse, that's verse 9, verse 8 tells us, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In a sea of rebels... God let his grace meet a man, not because of who the man was. We'll see that's true in just a second. The world is filled with violence and God promises to destroy. So all the destruction comes. And then God preserves a family. Who does he preserve? We've got one man, one woman, and three boys. There's a new creation happening, 
out of watery chaos. A new creation is coming with a new Adam and a new beginning. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of Noah's burnt offering, the Lord said in his heart, so Noah gets off the ark, first thing he does, remember how he had a pair of every animal, male and female, but of the clean animals, he had seven pairs. Why? Because he was readying already, before he entered the ark, he was readying for sacrifice. He knew that was going to be necessary. The Lord smells the aroma of the burnt offering. Prior to the tabernacle, the burnt offering is the only sin offering. There's no other sin offering. There isn't the sin offering and the guilt offering yet. Those are special revelations at the tabernacle. Prior to that, all we have is the fellowship offering, that is the peace offering, and the burnt offering, and the... It's in there. I just got to get to the right door. Um, There's one more. It'll hit me in the middle of a verse. So I think we're dealing with sin here. Now notice what it says. God smells the offering. Think about this. He smells the sacrifice. Or think about this. He smells the substitute burning in the fire of his wrath. And it's pleasing to him. And what does he say? I will never again curse the ground because of man. That was from the days of Adam. I'll never again curse the ground because of man. Why? Why won't you curse them? This is a very weird logic. Because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. How many mans are there at this point in history? There needs to be more than four. There needs to be Noah. There needs to be his wife. There needs to be his three boys and their wives. Eight. Eight people. Now, back in verse 5 of chapter 6, listen to what brings about the flood. Then Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Therefore, God brings the flood. He preserves Noah and his family. And then, with only eight of them left, he says this. I will never again curse the ground because of man, because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Have you ever thought about that? That the people who got off the ark were no different than those who caused the flood, including Noah. Hear that. The only thing that made Noah different is that Noah found grace. Period. Noah needed that burnt offering as much as anyone else. And the common grace that brings about the holding back of any more floods. Hear God's logic. I will not destroy the earth again because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. No, I would have thought it would have said, because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, I will bring another flood. But because his heart is evil, I will withhold my judgment. What's going on there? That's not normal logic. 
unless there's a greater logic at work. A logic that says, I made a promise about an offspring deliverer who would overcome the curse. And if I don't act, the cross can never come about. I used to never consider the significance of Noah's, the the Noahic covenant. The special covenant that God makes with all of creation after the flood. And now I realize, without it, you and I would have no hope. Why? Because people continued sick in soul, separated from God, having no disposition toward Him except by grace alone. And if that grace didn't show up, a grace that is not cheap, a grace that is costly, it is not free, mercy is not free, it cost Jesus His life. Only in that context is God justified to forgive sin. Remember Romans chapter 3. God had looked over the sins formerly committed, but now he sends Jesus in order to show that he is both just and the justifier of all who believe. But now if we confess with our if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. But there was a big question mark because the blood of bulls and goats is not enough. And Satan knew it. And I think Israel knew it. I think Israel would have had a constant question. How, God, can you hold things off? Because I recognize, if I'm honest with myself, I'm part of the problem and not the solution. And this verse says that even of Noah. But God blessed Noah and his his sons and said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Where do we hear that? Right after this, it goes on to talk about the image of God. Noah is like a new Adam. He's a second Adam. The New Testament doesn't call Jesus a second Adam. It calls him the last Adam. We have many images of Adam. God raising up fresh beginnings with fresh opportunity and yet all of them fail where Adam failed until the Son of the living God comes and succeeds perfectly establishing righteousness for us. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. The Noahic covenant is massively important. It climaxes, as you know, We just go through the the kids. They begin to grow. They all centralize around the Tower of Babylon. Same word as translated Babylon everywhere else in the Bible. They gather at Babylon. They build a tower. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. They're just climbing higher and higher. This is about me. This is about my name. Remember back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, it said, In the days of Seth, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. That's what the offspring, hoping in the promise, are looking at. And the rebels are not focused on the name of the Lord. They're focused on their own names. And they're trying to climb higher and higher. But then, ironically, it says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. They thought, we're going to reach heaven. And God had to come down because they never made it close. 
And the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the land dispersed over all the face of the earth. I don't think, as I said, this is the fulfillment of Genesis 1.28. Fill the earth, multiply and subdue it as imagers of God. That's going to take an entire revamping where a new creation would rise that would actually heed the call to image God. All underneath, dependent people, a generation of dependent people filling the earth, trusting in God's blessing, displaying the greatness of His excellencies. So what does K stand for? Kickoff and rebellion. Paradise, sin, exile, waters of judgment. So let's just say them out loud. Everybody, if your neighbor's not talking, just nudge them with your elbow, okay? Everybody just say it out loud. Put it to your lips. Let's just walk through the seven stages. Let me just see something. Okay, yes. Sorry. There, okay. Seven stages. K. I. N. G, D, O, M, instrument of blessing. So we've got four, four pictures here, and let's put them together. Here's my key verse, and it's going to be central to our entire discussion. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, let's go in and look at it in just a second. So a people for the fame of God's name. Why does God birth a people? Why did he create in the beginning? Why does he recreate in order to make a name, a people for himself? Here's what we, here's what we read. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name whom I created. Why? For my glory. You don't waste your life when you engage in that purpose and that purpose alone. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. To what end? To the praise of His glorious grace with which He blessed us in His beloved. The ultimate end is God. From Him, through Him, to Him are all things. What God? By Jesus all things exist in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers and authorities. All things were created through Him. All things were created for Him. To talk about the chief end of God is to talk about the chief end of Jesus. They're one and the same. So Romans 11.36, Colossians one. 16 and 17, both of them say the same thing. Romans 11 is about God, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Is about Jesus in Colossians 1, for by Him all things exist, through Him and for Him. All of it to the praise of His glorious grace. So God calls a man, Abraham. He encounters him in a compelling way that moves him out of all that is comfortable to follow radical promises. 
He's either coming from down right near the Persian Gulf, that's one potential site of Ur, or there's a second one way up north. And anyway, he comes down, he spends time in Israel, heads off to Egypt, back into Israel. All of it by faith. Called to go somewhere by faith. So, we see here the father and a son, and we come to this text. Now, I'm faced with a number of challenges as I approach this text. Um, One of them is, well, let me just read it. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, ESV, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." I read this and I say, what is it that could be so compelling to move a man out of what Joshua 24 tells us, his parents were moon worshipers in Haran? What would capture him to go across the world? He doesn't own the land and it's not something he can just claim. Inheritance rights Claim land. Not only that, the promise of nationhood might look beautiful, but verse 30 in chapter 11 told us his wife was barren. So you've got two side-by-side promises that seem too great. But by faith, Abraham went. We're supposed to feel the significance. Here in Genesis 12, it doesn't comment on faith. It holds it off until... It's focused on the offspring promise in Genesis 15. I don't have an heir. By faith, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him righteousness. It's the first time in Genesis we read the word about faith, believing. And it happens to focus on the offspring promise. And if you're reading Genesis from Genesis 3.15 forward, you know that the offspring is the one through whom all hope of the world is resting. And so the text waits to talk about faith until it's talking about faith in the promise of the offspring. But this is still faith. Go. There's two commandments here. But we only see one in the ESV. The second one comes at the end of verse 2. Go from your country and your kindred, and then there's promises. Go so that I will make you into a great nation, and bless you and make your name great. That's the first unit. Go to the land so that I can make you into a nation. But then, I I wish that the ESV would have not just said, so that you will be a blessing, because it's, it's, it's an imperative in the Hebrew text. It's a command. But the way that it's worded with an and in front of it suggests that it's in some way dependent on the going. But it doesn't lose its force, I don't believe. So go, and there you will be a a blessing. 
It's not a promise of what will happen. It's a call for it to happen. And I find this very important. Because in the same way that going, if he never left Mesopotamia, he would have never become a nation. And similarly, if he is not a blessing, be a blessing, Abraham. If he is not a blessing, then the world will never be blessed. Notice how it is. Read the last line of verse 2 as a command. Be a blessing. And then I would translate it the exact same way. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. But it's very important here to recognize there's two commands. And then there's promises that are contingent on those commands. And unless the obedience to the commands is followed, the promises will not be fulfilled. And the culminating promise is that the world's curse would be overcome through Abraham, through you, as an instrument of blessing, the world will be blessed. But I think the text actually says it will not happen unless, unless obedience happens. What would it mean to be a blessing? It means to not be a curse. To be a curse is to be under the judgment of God. To be a blessing is to be identified with God. So I think to be a blessing is to somehow point people to the source of blessing. That is to live in a way that will let people taste and see that God is good. That will give blessing to people. The second half of all the families of the earth being blessed, what we're going to see is that in the book of Genesis... That's just not something that happens throughout the Old Testament. No, it's longed for, and it's focused on a person. It's through a person that we're going to see the blessing of God will come. Nationhood, and then after nationhood, a person being the channel of blessing. Two stages, that's why I say two parts. Land and nationhood, and global blessing. Let's see... How it's handled later. First promise, offspring. We come to Genesis 15, 6. Believing impossible promises. This is the context for faith. You and I are wondering, what does faith in God look like? And Paul in Romans 4 says, well, go back and look at Genesis 15. This is what faith is. And God brought Abraham outside. How will I know that you'll give me a son? This isn't just a longing for a baby. This is being driven by the promise of God that He is to be the agent through whom all the world will be blessed. That is, we've learned that the offspring will be an offspring of the woman. Now we've learned that the deliverer is going to come through Abraham, and he knows it. And yet God said, I'm going to give you a nation and my wife is barren. What am I supposed to do? And God says, go out and look at the stars. See if you can count them. One, two, three, four, five. Every one of them pointers every night. Just go out and remind yourself, yes, I am still faithful. I made the promise once and the stars have not stopped shining and therefore, as certain as the stars are, so is my promise. You will have offspring as numerous as them. 
And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him righteousness. What's striking is that righteousness in the Old Testament is always a doing, ver- doing word. It's consistently about doing the right thing. It's about character alignment. But not in this text. In this text, it's about believing, not about doing. And God counts him as if he's done when he hasn't done. He cannot produce anything. He is completely unable. And Paul looks back and he says, you want to know what faith is about? It's about trusting God to do for you what you cannot do on your own. That was Abraham's faith. Righteousness is absolutely imperative. Living rightly. Indeed, the world will not be blessed. The curse will not be overcome until someone rises that will bless perfectly. And it's not Abraham. But God here counts Abraham as if he's right. When all he could do was trust for it. He's not doing All throughout the Mosaic Law, this term righteousness is always focused on doing the right thing. And it contrasts with Abraham who is counted as if he did the right thing when all he did was believe. In fact, he recognized he couldn't do anything. But he trusted God in relation to the promise. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah just laugh? Do you remember the story? The three guys come to the tent one year from now, you're going to have a kid. And Sarah was, you know, making treats in the tent. And all of a, but really what she was doing, she was just listening, overhearing her husband's conversation. And all of a sudden it was, <laughs> and, and God says, why did she laugh? And she, I just coughed. It wasn't really a laugh. Why did you laugh? Is anything too hard for God? This is the same word, Pella that we see wonderful counselor, wonder of a counselor. Is anything too wonderful for God? No. It would take a miracle. Yes, that's what faith is about. It would take a miracle. I bring nothing. He gives everything. That's what biblical faith is. How about a land? In the same chapter 15, it starts out focused on the offspring promise, then it gives rise to the land promise. Abraham asked the first question, how will I know that you will give me a son? Second question, how will I know that you will give me the land? When the sun went down, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Have you ever read that and thought, that's a little weird? On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, if you're Israel going through the wilderness, waiting and following, what are they waiting for? In the wilderness. What are they waiting for? For God to show them the promised land, but all their movements are contingent on waiting and following. So what are they waiting for? For God, what about God? 
for his cloud to rise. And what did that cloud look like at night? So if you're Israel reading the story of Abraham, what lens do you have when it says that a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces? And he's sleeping. And it's nighttime. Right? He just saw the stars. And now he's asleep and there's a vision going on. The one that's passing between the pieces is not Abraham. It's the presence of the living God. And the image is, according to Jeremiah 34, what we get, and from outside the Bible when we see covenant ceremonies enacted, what we see is, for example, one king slits the throat of a goat. And he tells the small king, he's the big king, he tells the small king, let happen to me what I just did to this goat if I fail to give you the land as I promised it to you. I think that's exactly what God's doing. Let me stop being God. Let me become like these animals that have just been diced up around you if I fail to keep my bargain. How will I know if you'll give me this land? Okay, I'll show you. I'm going to put my own life on the line. If I fail to keep this bargain, there will be no more God. That's how certain it is. But notice that it's not just a land that they need. He doesn't just need to become a nation. He doesn't just need offspring, people, and property. No. Once there, he needs to be a blessing so that the world can be blessed. Notice Genesis 17. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Even when Ruth, before Ruth, even when Rahab and Ruth... Rahab the Canaanite, Ruth the Moabite, Uriah the Hittite, they all come in, but they, be, they all become Israel. It's still one nation. Abraham is a father of a single nation through the entire Old Testament. This promise is not fulfilled by Ruth and Rahab and Uriah coming in because they become full-blooded Israelites. Their offspring are counted as seed of Abraham in contrast to the nations. This is looking ahead to a new step in history. A second stage of history. There is the period of the Mosaic Covenant that fulfills stage one of Moses, but then there is the period of the New Covenant that fulfills stage two. Sorry. Mosaic Covenant that fulfills stage one of the Abrahamic Covenant. The new covenant in Christ fulfills stage two of the Abrahamic covenant. It's a two-step process that's already envisioned here in Genesis. Let's see it a little bit more. Blessing reaching the nations. Look at Genesis 22. This is God right after he has proclaimed, Now I know that you fear me, Abraham. You don't have to kill your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. I've supplied for you. A goat caught in the thicket. A ram. Slaughter him in the stead of your son. Then we read this. I will surely bless you, Abraham. I will multiply your offspring as the stars in the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Sound familiar? Offspring. There's that word again, that seed. The same word we saw in Genesis 3.15.
her offspring and you will be at odds. You will bruise his head. He will bru- sorry, he will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. Offspring. Eliezer of Damascus can't be my he can be my heir, but he's not my seed, Abraham says. He's not my offspring. And God says, no, an offspring from your own body will be your heir. Offspring. Your offspring here will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as the sand in the sea. But then notice what it does. It makes a switch. And your offspring shall possess the gate of what? Their enemies? His using the exact same structure we saw back in Genesis 3.15. Notice what happens here. The day is envisioned not simply where there will be a multitude of people, but where there will be one, a deliverer, who will possess the gate of his enemies. And through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through one, blessing will come. Through one, notice, if the enemy gates are being possessed, in your land you don't have the enemy gates. For there to be enemy gates means that you've gone beyond your turf to enemy turf. In the same way that you move from one nation to being a father of one nation to a father of a multitude of nations, this is envisioning that they're going to move from having their land to that land expanding. Because he's going to possess the enemy gates. And through this same seed, the world will be blessed. Now back in Genesis 12 verse 3, I I didn't show it, but you can see it right on the top of your page. Here it says, through you all the nations will be blessed. But in Genesis 12 3, it says all the families. Do you see that? The last time families was used was back in chapter 10. Talking about the 70 families that come forth from the Tower of Babel. Now I asked you, why do we have linear genealogies focused on the line that is trusting in the promises and segmented genealogies that slow us down in the book of Genesis? Why drawing attention to these rebels? Is it just to let Israel know where all of their enemies came from? I think it's so much more. They are the families of the earth. The 70 families are the mission field of the Abrahamic covenant. Through you, all those families of the earth will be blessed. And now we learn that the blessing will come through a single male descendant in the line of Abraham. Not only will he be in the line of Abraham, he will be in the line of Judah. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. That sounds almost skull-crushing. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is influence, not just of ruling Judah, but having an influence that is so much broader. He's not only in the line of the woman, coming from the woman. He's not only in the line of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, twelve sons, Judah. He's going to be a royal king, a royal son, who will have global influence, who will possess enemy gates, and he will be the agent of blessing to the world. All of that in the book of Genesis. We're envisioning mission. 
Mission growing out of a kingship. Mission being sparked that will bring blessing and overcome curse. Moving people from enemies to friends. Once again, that's the longing. And we're only in the first book of the Old Testament. It's a laser beam vision of hope. That in every stage of the Old Testament story of sin, sin, sin. Keep looking ahead. Keep looking ahead. Don't stop believing. God made a Noahic covenant. He's not going to destroy us again by water. He is going to raise up the royal deliverer. We don't know his name. We don't know exactly when. But we know he is coming. And we know his lineage. We know that he is royal in the line of Judah, in the line of Abraham, from the woman. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Don't pass over that. Abraham knew Jesus was coming. He's not just reading this into the text. He's declaring Abraham longed for something that you and I are getting to see and savor. He rejoiced to see this day. And I think it's right there in the text. As you know, the promise is carried on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Joseph is sold into slavery. He rises up to be second in command. All of this, he tells us, is in order that God might preserve a people. God sent me before you, he tells his brothers, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And we have to read that and not just say, this is a nice story about Joe. We have to say, this is a story fit within the context of Genesis. Why is it needed that Israel would be survivors? Why could God not let Israel be wasted away? Because all the world's hopes is resting on this people through whom the king would come. And if God lets them waste away, there is no Messiah, there is no redemption, all there is is judgment. The entire narrative of Joseph is about the Christ. Because without it, we would not have one. We have to read it in this bigger lens of where the trajectory is of a people who've entered into curse and where all the curses, the hopes of being freed from it is hinging on this single offspring who is carried on through the linear genealogies. Hope in him is carried on, focused in the life of Shem, focused in the life of Abraham, focused in the life of Judah. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Not just you, but Egypt. The world being saved from this famine as a pointer to a more greater salvation. I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Second to last verse in the book of Joshua, 
tells us, and they buried the bones of, jo- of Joseph in the land. In order to say, fulfillment. God's given them the land, but that's only stage one. Because God did not raise up the world for Israel's sake. He raised up Israel for the world. And so we keep reading the Old Testament all the while with a global vision in sight. Longing for the day when the ruler would rise and everything would go global. He is going to be a king. How he relates at this point to the suffering servant is not known. But we know that he's king. Exalted over all. Instrument of blessing. Promise of offspring, promise of land, promise of blessing reaching all the nations. Questions? Be bold. Come on. Yes. Is this this conflict of covenantal theology versus like Presbyterian versus Baptist? In other words, the rights the people that believe in good works and the others that are just saved by faith and sometimes you know the balance of chief grace and those that are active. There's a tension that we're supposed to feel, I believe, in, in the Old Testament to God's unrelenting faithfulness to His promise. This is going to happen. I am going to overcome the curse. It is going to happen. Just watch me do it. Sit back and watch me win. And that it will only be accomplished through a faithful remnant. There's a tension there, especially when generation after generation, what we see is lack of faithfulness, lack of faithfulness, lack of faithfulness, and it's as if, um, I'll pull a Apostle Paul here for a second, it's as if Sarah and Hagar were a picture of more ultimate realities. God makes a promise that Sarah would have a child, and she doesn't. She doesn't. She doesn't. In contrast, Hagar is flourishing. And almost when it seemed like there was no hope, all of a sudden, Sarah gives birth. Yet she gives birth, according to Isaiah 54, think what's in Isaiah 53, She gives birth in Isaiah 54 without labor pains, we're told. She doesn't have to undergo the curse herself. In fact, she remains barren. But now she has children, more than Hagar did. Says Isaiah 54, 1 through 3. 
it happens, there's a tension that's happening. How, God, are you going to accomplish this when, how are you going to bring, how are you going to overcome the curse when your people are a bunch of sinners? Not honoring you. Not living for you. It's not just a matter of they're progressing. No, they're dead. They're in a, they're in a covenant that is beautiful in the way that it's revealed. Loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, is a beautiful thing to command. It's the right thing to command. But it's given to a people whose hearts are dead and it just destroys them. It results in their ruin, in their, in their curse. And so you and I are the reader of the Old Testament and as we're walking through the story, we're feeling this tension and this hopelessness because especially when we get up to the monarchy... We read beforehand in Judges, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then we see king after king after king. He's not the one. He's not the one. He's not the one. Maybe he's the one. No, he's not the one. And our eyes just keep having to push forward. And I think we're supposed to feel that tension. It's part of God's drama. It's part of the way that he's laid out his story to make us long increasingly for one greater than us, greater than anyone else in the story. And God himself takes on that, that form. He becomes, he, he becomes holy man and will succeed where Adam failed. He'll be the last Adam. He will bring forth, be the one to bring forth blessing to the world. He will be the ultimate offspring of Abraham. Galatians 3.16 He will be the ultimate son of David, the ultimate king of Israel, representing the entire nation. And I think the story is designed to make us feel the tension, feel the rub, and and even for you and I as believers to read the story in a way that magnifies even our longing, our hope increasingly in the Messiah, in Christ. I don't know if that... We can follow up further on the tensions between Baptists and Presbyterians. I didn't quite understand that part. But, but I think we're supposed to feel this inner tension as we read the story that's only resolved. So a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who will by no means let the guilty go free. How can you forgive sin, transgression, and iniquity, and yet by no means let the guilty go free. It's only answered in the cross. How both can be operative at the same time. His wrath be satisfied and mercy be bestowed. But I think even at this point in the Old Testament story, we're supposed to be beginning to feel, um, feel this inner tension and an inner longing. A longing for the one who was to come. I think Moses already understood this. This isn't just reading the New Testament back into it. I think this is how the story itself unravels within the context of the Old Testament. And it's how the New Testament authors, I think, were reading Jesus right there in the text. We can follow up. Another question? Yes. Yeah. He shows up strangely, doesn't he? 
So he is Melek, king, Tzedek, king of righteousness, and he ministers in Shalom, Salem, short for Jerusalem. So he's the king of righteousness overseeing the city of peace. He represents what is needed in God's world. And Abraham himself shows that he's not only... I mean, it it happens in the very context. Chapter 15, where Abraham believes God and it's counted to him righteousness, flows out of the very first verses of chapter 15, connect it with the episode with Melchizedek. And so Abraham is putting his hope in the offspring who would come in chapter 15, and in chapter 14, he's putting his, he's paying tithes, showing he is dependent on, subservient to, this king priest, Melchizedek, who's very mysterious, and we have no idea where he came from or how he's supposed to fit into the story. But what we do see is a trajectory. We see a trajectory of his identity as king of righteousness and overseer of peace. And so that's his his identity. We see that he's in a priesthood that is not related biologically to Abraham. And we see that Abraham is viewing him as worthy of honor. Abraham would not receive from the king of Sodom any gift for his great victory, but Abraham will give a gift to the king of to King Melchizedek. There's an irony there. Don't look at me. I'm not the answer. He's the answer. There's something going on here that sets the stage for us, not on the first read, I don't think, but it's much like a good mystery. You're reading the mystery and you're in suspense. You don't understand. You're not seeing things, and all of a sudden, everything is answered in the final chapter, and you want to go back. If it was a really good one, you want to go back and start reading again, and all of a sudden, you start seeing signals that the God who orchestrated the entire drama was giving us if we knew the story. And if it's a really great story, we might read it a second time, third time, fourth time. I just love this one. God wants us to get caught up into his drama. It's not a made-up story. It happened. It's, it really happened. But there's certain elements in the story that I don't think we... How much Moses knew about Melchizedek, I don't know. But there's something there. He definitely knows there's something going on. And ultimately, it's not until Psalm 110 that we get Melchizedek show up again. And all of a sudden, he is receiving the priesthood that was promised, I think, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30... When God says, those who honor me I will honor, those who despise me will be lightly esteemed, I will rip the priesthood away from Eli in the days of Samuel, rip it away from Eli and his house, and I will give it to a faithful priest who will serve my house, and that house, I translate it this way, that house will walk in and out before the anointed forever. And I think the anointed is on the throne of God and he is the faithful priest. And just 20 verses earlier, the, faith, the anointed was the king. So the king and the priest are together in, Second Sam, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Both of them called the anointed one. Both of them, I believe, having a perfect identity. And the image is that this priesthood is going to replace Aaron's priesthood. 
And then we get to Psalm 110, and David says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Jesus says, well, who is David's Lord? It, well, who, who was the Messiah? He was the son of David. Well, why did David call him Lord when he said, come sit at my right hand? And he's talking about Jesus there. And Jesus is identifying himself with this one who is given the priesthood of Melchizedek. The prophets somehow meditating on the text. I mean, 1 Peter 1 tells us they searched, the prophets of the Old Testament, searched and inquired carefully. 1 Peter 1.10. They searched and inquired carefully to know what time and person the Spirit of Christ in them was proclaiming the days of salvation we now enjoy. They were searching and inquiring carefully to know what time and person the Messiah would be and when he would come. What were they searching? God's word. I think the prophets, people like the psalmist, David in Psalm 110, he's called a prophet in Acts chapter 2, verse 30. David is a prophet who is searching and inquiring carefully in books like Genesis, reading them in light of all the history that has been laid out before him in the past and saying, Jesus He's in the line of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, who even Abraham paid tithes to. And in doing so, as the writer of Hebrews says, in his very loins was all of Israel submitting themselves to this higher priest. We only get there, though, as we read and reread, like the prophets themselves were, searching and inquiring carefully into the book, reading it over and over again. They with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They, writing fresh words of God, we simply submitting ourselves to the written word. That's all I got. Let's call it a night. I hope you can come back tomorrow. We'll pick up there. May the Lord bless you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.